Okay, Joshua, I'm going to show you something and I want you to explain it to me. <laughs> I'm a little nervous, but okay. <laughs> Good evening, my fellow Americans. That's Tricky Dick. That's Richard Nixon. Fate has ordained that the men who went to the moon... What's he doing? He's, he's talking about the moon, about Neil Armstrong. He's reading an address to the public about the Apollo program. Neil Armstrong and Edwin Aldrin know that there is no hope for their recovery. Wait, that doesn't sound historically accurate. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin definitely returned from the moon, as far as I know. What do you think's going on here? Wait, so is this a deep fake? Bingo. Yes, this is, as they say, deep fake technology. This in particular is a film that was made by the MIT Center for Advanced Virtuality. It's called In Event of Moon Disaster. It's basically this speech that he was supposed to give if there was a moon disaster, and they've deep faked his voice and his face so that he is reading this speech. The point of this video was, they say, to demonstrate the range of misinformation that is possible. So we're going to look at some of the different ways that this technology can be used. Some of them are fun. Some of them touch on geopolitical concerns and others, we should make listeners aware, lead us into the world of online sexual harassment. We're going to find out how the existence of deepfake technology could threaten your First Amendment rights and not in the way you might think. That's a lot of ground to cover, but I had some great tour guides, including someone who has made a lucrative career out of creating the more fun kinds of deepfakes. And then on Reddit, I started seeing a few um, videos of deepfakes. And I was like, well, that looks a lot more fun. And experts who are leading the fight against the not fun kind. That latter group, by the way, Joshua, includes my first ever interview with a former representative from the United States Congress. Katie Hill. One in 25 Americans is a victim of cyber exploitation or is threatened with it. When we get back, we'll look at what this so-called deep fake technology can do. The good, the bad, and the deeply disturbing. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. And I'm Joshua Rivera. In this show, we explore the weirder side of familiar technology. In this episode, the technology in question is so-called deep fakes. Joshua, do you know why they're called that? Actually, I don't. It just sort of popped up. So it's a portmanteau. The fake part is obviously pretty obvious, but the deep part actually comes from deep learning, which is a kind of machine learning where an AI is exposed to a lot of information of a particular kind, so say videos of a former US president, and can then use what it's learned to generate a fake that is difficult to distinguish from the real thing. But that is all very techy and abstract, so I thought we'd look at some fun examples. This is from a movie I have actually seen, which is Forrest Gump, but... Uh, not as you know him. Hmm. What could be different, I wonder? The caption is telling me it is Keanu Reeves' Forrest Gump. My name's Forrest. Forrest Gump. This is the very familiar image of Forrest Gump on a bench, except his face is different. Do you want a chocolate? Yeah, this is weird, man. This one is just weird. I could eat about a million. It's making me appreciate that all of Keanu is handsome. Like, the shape of his head and the way his hair falls and everything like that. With the rest of Tom Hanks' skull, I'm sort of unsettled. Because it looks so realistic? 
So here's the interesting thing about this one. I don't see either actor here. Like, you know, I obviously know this is Forrest Gump and I know Tom Hanks played Forrest Gump. But like just looking at this as a guy sitting on a bench, he just looks like a guy sitting on a bench, not someone I recognize like Keanu Reeves or Tom Hanks, right? Does that make sense? It's so well done, I think, that it kind of blends. Yeah. So much so that you can't see the outline of Keanu Reeves' face and where he stops and Tom Hanks begins because it's so well put together. So the creator behind this video, Keanu Reeves as Forrest Gump, is known as The Fakening. And he's managed to make a career as a so-called deepfake artist. So wait, you can make money doing this? Yeah, apparently. And I guess not, you know, Keanu Reeves paying him to deepfake his face onto Tom Hanks' body. Um, (laughs) But there is a market for this kind of thing. So, for example, how do you feel about The Strokes? I love The Strokes. A lot of people know them from, like, Guitar Hero, a rock band, right? Like, uh, Reptilia was, like, a big, I think, Guitar Hero 2 song. I mean, they were also just, like, the band that was going to save New York rock. Yeah, so they are a rock band from Manhattan. Uh, They're known for songs like Last Night and Someday and Reptilia. This year, they released a song called Bad Decisions, and the music video for that song was made by The Fakening. Oh, wow. I haven't seen this yet. Well, here it is. (laughs) So the tricky thing about this is now that I know it's by a deep fake artist, I'm starting to second guess myself all the time. Uh Like the lead singer, Julian Casablancas. I know he's a bit older right now, and he doesn't quite look like this anymore. And I'm I'm assuming, are they all swapping faces? Yeah, looks like it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, This is pretty cool. What I like about this one is that they've kind of explored the theme of the deepfake in the video, so they're not just using Mm -hmm. it as a bit. I saw this video and I knew that we had to talk to the person who made it to, to like find out how he made a career out of creating deepfakes and also how he reconciles that with all of the worries that people have about this technology. So we got in touch and obviously the fakening is not his real name. My name is uh, Paul Shales, also known as The Fakening. First things first, we asked Paul to give us his definition of a deep fake. I kind of just think the word deep implies deep learning, machine learning, that it was an AI recreation. To me, I guess that's kind of just the difference between a deep fake and classic visual effects. Yeah. So basically what I'm understanding here is that a big part of what distinguishes a deep fake is that it's not a visual effects artist like manually doing everything, right? You're teaching an AI to sort of automatically generate these swapped faces. That's basically it. It's kind of like an extension of visual effects that has all of this AI-based technology built in. And as far as how Paul got into this line of work, he started in the more traditional world of computer programming and web development. And it was really kind of boring. So I guess the way to be a thrill seeker in the world of computing is to explore brand new technologies, which for Paul meant venturing into machine learning. And my first idea was to try and make a neural network to do sports betting predictions. I thought like, okay, well, even if it doesn't give me the best picks, maybe I can sell those picks with like, oh, they came from deep learning. That's a different kind of grift. Sure. It's interesting, I think, that even at this stage, Paul had realized that labeling something deep could be like a marketing tactic. Mm. Like, here's an extension of an improvement on technology we already had, but people are super interested in it because it has a new name. Right. And this is actually going to come up later. Anyway, it turns out that sports betting software was not interesting enough for Paul. And then on Reddit, I started seeing a few um, videos of deepfakes. And I was like, well, that looks a lot more fun. From that point on, Paul went into freelance life. 
And I just started putting out the videos, um, all, all my experiments, just really trying to make people laugh, gained a, a following, and it's just kind of snowballed from there. And eventually I was able to just kind of parlay away from uh, my day job and just make these. I mean, that's the dream, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> quit your day job and make deep fakes. Right. And to further that dream, eventually he landed a really big project, which you saw earlier. The Strokes is the one that got a lot of press coverage. Of course, as the cliche goes, it's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. And lots of people worry about the potential for deepfake technology to be used to cause harm. One concern that gets a lot of media attention is the potential impact in the geopolitical sphere. Yeah, there's definitely a darker side to this. Like, it would be awful and also extremely possible for someone to make a deepfake of, like, the president declaring war on another nation. Yeah, totally. So you can see why this kind of thing gets a lot of coverage, right? You can imagine how this kind of technology could be used for really, really nefarious purposes. So naturally, with all these concerns, there are people working on the other side of things. So on deepfake detection. Paul actually helps them. There's also a lot of people that have reached out to me and um, I've, I've even given them copies of my catalog to put into their deepfake detecting software. And he's developed a pretty good eye for this kind of thing over time. Now that I have uh, like a couple years experience, I can spot where the machine kind of goes wrong. I'm like, oh, you look at the eyebrow here. You can see there's a bit of a GAN grid. It didn't get the hair right. Hell yeah. He's like Sherlock Holmes, but for AI. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I just watched the movie Enola Holmes and Sherlock goes on and on about like the details in people's handwriting and their stance and so on. But nowadays there is so much more to look at. And luckily, experts are developing methods of detection to protect us from deepfake catastrophe. And we were lucky enough to talk to one of them. Hani Farid, I'm a professor here at UC Berkeley, and I specialize in visual misinformation and at-scale content moderation. And I think a lot about how we can deal with the misuse of technology and visual media. And he painted us a picture of the current state of this technology and why we should be concerned. What you should know about deepfakes is that it's unfortunately a very broad term, and it encapsulates everything from a fake image to a fake video to a fake audio. So here the issue is more about the the process of creating the fake content, that that is now being automated by very sophisticated machine learning algorithms. Dr. Farid has been dealing with manipulated media for quite some time. And so for the last 20 years, I've been working on authenticating digital media. And a lot has, of course, changed. The power to manipulate media has changed. The ability to distribute that media has changed through social media. So that threat vector is now very different today than it was 20 years ago. 20 years later, we've evolved from Photoshop to convincing videos of politicians saying things they never said, which brings its own problems. The difficulty now, of course, is When our focus was on the criminal justice system in the courts, we had weeks, months, years to thoughtfully analyze content and develop new techniques to authenticate them. And now, at the tune of 500 hours of YouTube video uploaded a minute, at the tune of a billion uploads of Facebook a day, God knows how many TikTok videos a second, the sheer volume of content that is coming down the pike We simply can't authenticate that on the fly. And that is a whole new set of challenges. But fortunately, people like Dr. Farid are good at what they do. And the detection technology is pretty solid. Paul actually confirmed this for us. For the mainstream problems, the detection is like spot on. 
But deepfakes do have a different application that still disturbs me. The average person on their laptop can now create, for example, non-consensual pornography. That is probably the single largest uh, misuse of this technology. Yeah, this is probably the most horrible implication of this because it's the most targeted and harmful. Right. So that's what we're going to talk about now. Non-consensual pornography, which is sometimes called revenge porn. And we will talk about the problem with that terminology later. But this is the unsettling consequence of deepfake technology that really is a problem, especially for women. Even fun-loving deepfake artist Paul can't dismiss it. I do get requests for it all the time. And they're fishy as fuck. So what I always say to them is what I require is the person's face. I need that person to sit down in front of the camera and they're going to read a script saying that they give full consent and, and I never hear back from them, ever. So as with many other technologies before, deepfakes are providing yet another way for people to harass and abuse women and gender minorities, and that sucks. But in researching this episode, I got to talk to some inspiring women who are shining a light and trying to right this wrong. When we get back, we'll hear from Samantha Cole, the vice reporter covering this dark corner of the internet, Dr. Marianne Franks, professor of law and powerhouse leader in the advocacy for victims of non-consensual pornography, and Katie Hill, a former US congresswoman whose direct experience with this kind of abuse led her to fight against it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. This show is about how technology intersects with our lives. And we've covered some fun stories, like how the presence of Apple products spoils movie plots and why we can't see butts on Disney+. But the internet is a vast and often lawless place. We live in a time when a person's rights can be violated entirely online. And we're figuring out how to mitigate these problems in real time. So when we were researching deepfakes for this episode, it quickly became clear that the elephant in the room was a very specific application of the technology, taking existing imagery of people, mostly women, and using it to create non-consensual pornography. Now, as we'll discuss, people have been using digital manipulation techniques to create crude pornographic imagery for decades, and even the modern deepfake versions often aren't meant to actually convince anyone that they might be real, which is what we worry about in the political sphere. But it's part of this larger problem of online abuse that has huge repercussions, even going all the way to the First Amendment. And it mostly affects women. One of those women is Katie Hill. I'm Katie Hill. I am the former congresswoman from California's 25th district. I'm so glad Katie agreed to speak to us. And we'll hear from her throughout the rest of the episode. She's an advocate for women's rights, especially when it comes to the issue of cyber exploitation. Well, it's important to me because it happened to me. And, you know, that's really how I was exposed to how broad the issue is. My resignation was a result of my ex-husband, my abusive ex-husband, releasing images of me in conjunction with my political enemies and with the right-wing media. And I was like more than half of victims of revenge porn. I was suicidal in the aftermath. And I decided that at that point, it was best for me to step down. And I have since turned into an advocate around it. She gave us some sobering statistics. One in 25 Americans is a victim of cyber exploitation or is threatened with it. Uh, 90% are women. Yeah, these are a lot of people. And like that statistic illustrates, almost all of them are women. So it's something that 
if you are a man, you might not even be aware of. Right, which I guess is one of the reasons we're talking about this. So to find out more about how technology plays a part in this kind of abuse and what motivates the people behind it, I spoke to a writer for Motherboard, which is the technology and science side of Vice, who took on the unenviable task of exploring this world. I'm Samantha Cole. I'm a staff writer at Motherboard. Samantha and her colleagues started reporting on deepfakes back in 2017, and their research involved following deepfake communities on Discord. Discord is like a chat server for gamers. You can do like voice and share pictures and videos and that sort of thing. So people have been using Discord for a long time for deepfakes because it was easy to share like databases of faces, which you needed a lot of to make a deepfake. Through these Discord servers, Samantha and her colleagues discovered a new way that deepfake technology was being used. They were basically working on the software that was creating 3D avatars. The idea was it was going to be in virtual reality and you could have sex with like whoever you wanted in your fantasy through virtual reality. And what kind of stood out to us is they were using the same principles of deepfakes and kind of using this face swapping technology, but they were using it on 3D models. And most of them were women because the market was straight men. This is an extremely brazen and like shameless community. There is an entitlement there and a disregard for consent. Yeah. And they do try to justify what they're doing, but it's pretty weak. They're obviously like 3D gamified looking women, but um, just kind of the the total lack of just like, oh, this doesn't matter because we're using fake images and kind of creating this from our own imaginations. But you're still, you know, you're using someone's likeness, you're using their faces to create something that you say is now yours because you put these pieces together. Other people's likenesses are not things that other people can use freely. That's theft. Right. Even if you put the pornographic side of things aside, it is not cool to stick someone else's face on something that you want to use and share. So the bottom line. It's experimenting on women's bodies in a way that no one actually gave them permission to do. Strangely enough, this is actually where the introduction of deepfake technology into the world of non-consensual pornography might help to debunk a popular argument that is used against victims of this kind of abuse. Samantha summarizes it like this. That is something that we kind of hear again and again with victims of online harassment or victims of revenge porn and stuff like that. Why were you taking nudes if you didn't want them to be shared? You knew the risk. Of course, this is a willful misunderstanding of the problem. Katie Hill, our former U.S. congresswoman, explains why. The reality is that massive numbers of people send these images. And when you're sending them back and forth to each other, to a partner and you sh you decide to share them, it's just like having sex, right? You can decide to do that with one person. That doesn't mean you're giving your consent to, you know, have sex with that person and then all his friends. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're giving your consent for them to share that image with anybody, let alone, you know, across the internet. So we know that mentality is wrong. It's not a woman's fault if she shows her naked body to one person and then it is then shown to millions more. But for people who refuse to accept that point, deepfakes kind of change everything. It's interesting you say there about people blaming the victims for putting themselves out there in nude photos. Putting that aside and obviously agreeing with you that we shouldn't blame those people, I think what we're looking at with deepfakes adds something there because women don't even have to share exactly. nude photos, right? Exactly. So does, does that mean 100%. that deepfakes adds a whole a whole level to it for you? Exactly. And with technology of deepfakes, then it can be it can be brutal, you know, and, they, and you have no ability to control it. And and the hands that it gets into, especially as a public figure, this can affect anyone. Right. 
I don't even have to take a nude photo of myself and put myself in risk as the bad faith argument goes. They can just take a photo from anywhere and use deepfake technology to make it into something that I never did. So even if you think that no one could ever do this to you because you've never taken any nude photos or, you know, been in a position where someone else could take them of you, deepfake technology means that people can do this to you, which is pretty bleak. But people like Katie are fighting this in various ways. So, for example, she told us about this organization. One of the best resources is, especially for victims of cyber exploitation, is the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. The mission statement of the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is, quote, to combat online abuses that threaten civil rights and civil liberties. To get to the crux of why this is so important, we talked to their president. I'm Marianne Franks. I'm a professor of law at the University of Miami School of Law and also the president and legislative and tech policy director of the nonprofit organization, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. Dr. Franks got involved with the issue of non-consensual pornography after she spoke to a woman who had a similar experience to Katie. A woman named Holly Jacobs, or who was going by the name Holly Jacobs at the time, contacted me and told me that she had been a victim of what we call non-consensual pornography now, but was often or is often referred to as revenge porn. And it really was listening to her thinking it is absolutely unacceptable that in our society this can happen to someone. And so that was kind of the impetus behind the organization which she founded, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, and that I became a founding member of. And it's really through that vehicle that we have focused not only on the non-consensual pornography question, but also manipulated imagery like deepfakes and other forms of sexual exploitation online. So as Dr. Frank says there, non-consensual pornography is often referred to as revenge porn, but that is problematic. Dr. Franks has a really good explanation. Really hate that term. It's something that, you know, everything about it is wrong. I mean, the first thing is that, of course, it suggests that revenge in this sense is either justifiable in some ways or, or somehow understandable. We certainly do see a lot of these classic cases of angry ex-partner who's who's trying to lash out. But we also see a bunch of people who are just out there doing it for profit. Yeah, it could be entitlement. It could be, again, like money. It's, it's just exploitation. Right. So ditch the revenge part. But they've kept the pornography part. We don't mean it in the sense of every time you take a naked picture of yourself or send it to someone, that's pornographic. We definitely don't want to suggest that. And that is what some people read into it. But What we do retain when we say non-consensual pornography is the idea that someone has done that to you. They've turned you into sexual entertainment without your consent, which is pornographic. All right. So this definition that Marianne is giving us is that this is using a person's likeness for sexual entertainment without their consent. So then how do you fight that? Legislation. Because as Dr. Franks explained to the victim who came to her, she couldn't do anything if it wasn't against the law. So... In this conversation that I had with Holly Jacobs and in starting the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, she said, look, these lawyers, the police that I've gone to, everyone that I've talked to has said, we can't do anything about this because what he did, what this, what has happened to you isn't against the law. And she said to me, if it's not against the law, it needs to be and I need your help to change it. So today in New York and now 46 US jurisdictions, online sexual abuse in the form of non-consensual image sharing is a criminal offense, which is great. I actually went and looked up what the law is here in the UK, um, ready to get on my high horse about it. But we have the same problem. The UK government calls it revenge porn on their website. And the law itself, which is from the Criminal Justice and Courts Act from 2015, states that 
It is an offence for a person to disclose a private sexual photograph or film if the disclosure is made A. Without the consent of an individual who appears in the photograph or film and B. With the intention of causing that individual distress. Part B is obviously the frustrating part here because it means you have to prove intent, which could be really limiting. Right. And this is the drawback of legislation, especially when something moves as quickly as technology. Legislation takes such a long time and it's frozen at the time it was introduced Mm -hmm. and it can feel outdated or even harmful in its language by the time it's codified and then changing it is a whole other process. So in both the UK and the US, the laws are restricted, which Dr. Franks is pretty unhappy about. The other part about the story is that very often for reasons that I have already sort of gestured at, um, because of opposition from certain quarters, the laws that do get passed are often watered down. They're often restricted. We've also found challenges in terms of actual defendants saying this violates the First Amendment and being able to, to garner the support of some other influential organizations and have sued over um, First Amendment grounds. So that's one big reason that some people don't want a law that criminalizes non-consensual pornography, the First Amendment. Oh, the free speech dudes have an opinion, huh? That doesn't make sense, though, because you can trademark your likeness. Your likeness is also a form of speech and expression, and that should be protected. Right. We will get into this. And it obviously doesn't surprise you to know that there are people out there protesting their right to express themselves through using someone else for sexual entertainment without their consent. But it might surprise you to hear about some of the organizations who are also working to water down these laws. People who are essentially non-consensual pornography apologists, right? The ones who consume this type of material, the ones who disseminate this kind of material. And, you know, your, your garden variety misogynist who just thinks, hey, I don't want there to be any limitations on this kind of material. But then you ask yourself, but what about serious lawyers? What about the ACLU? What about the Electronic Frontier Foundation? What about um, the trade associations that, that you know, use? I mean, all of these organizations have millions of dollars at their disposal to marshal against laws they don't like or that they've taken some issue with. And they can really make your life very difficult. I should add in that the Motion Picture Association of America, which also has combated our laws in various states and has tried to, to make sure that they are as watered down as possible. Yeah, that strikes me as something that has come about as, you know, digitally resurrecting actors has become a thing. And that comes with the sort of legislative side effect of also giving people leeway to make this sort of non-consensual pornography. Yeah. So I asked Dr. Franks what she thought about how these organizations might explain their reasoning. What I'm sure they would say is, well, you know, as much as we recognize the harms of non-consensual pornography, we think the First Amendment requires us to protect it. And that is what they will say. I'm sure that is the, the standard line. And it just doesn't hold up. My feeling is actually across all of those opponents, I don't think there are good faith First Amendment advocates who truly do believe that this is protected free speech. They either are actually affirmatively in favor of women being women in particular being treated this way because it is disproportionately women, or they're just indifferent to it. That is, they'd rather uphold an abstract principle, which actually, again, in the in practice, doesn't support their position. They just don't care enough about women's rights. They just don't care enough as opposed to profit or as opposed to the entertainment value of this. And this is always the problem, right? You have to convince people in power to care about something that is overwhelmingly a problem for women. And that does become easier as more women are elected into those positions of power, which is happening. And here's the kicker. The existence of this kind of online sexual abuse is itself an obstacle to some of those women, especially now with the introduction of deepfake technology. 
every woman now who thinks about maybe running for political office or becoming a journalist or um, taking a leadership role in our society now has to worry, in addition to all the other sexist forces that are activated against women, has to worry that maybe nude voters are going to come out at some point because she trusted a boyfriend or a girlfriend at some point in her life or was recorded under certain circumstances. And now with the advent of digitally manipulated imagery, even if you hadn't, even if, if you had somehow really been able to ensure that your image was never taken in this way, you can't be sure now that it wouldn't be made to look as though um, you had taken some photos like this. We are quickly approaching a time where everyone have grown up online and everyone will have this sort of like leverage against them. And that will mean that the inequities will just begin to be magnified here. So, you know, you have these guys arguing that criminalizing non-consensual pornography impacts their right to free expression. But the risk of becoming a victim of this kind of abuse is actually already impacting that right for women. Exactly. And, and that that is one of the deepest ironies of the objection on First Amendment grounds. Right. Yeah, because the worst kinds of arguments for the First Amendment are the ones that brazenly suppress the First Amendment rights of others. And this is what happened to Katie. Her experience with non-consensual pornography is what made her relinquish her position in the House of Representatives. But she's still trying to change things. She's written a book called She Will Rise and started a political action committee. Called Her Time. And that is uh, really focused on helping women to get elected to office. Because I think that the way that we're going to be able to change focus and, and make sure that we are addressing these issues is by getting that representation, making sure that people who have lived experience, who know people who have been the victims of this and who understand technology, who understand the changing dynamics of the world that we live in, are in positions of power to be able to affect change. Each of the women that I spoke to for this episode gave me reason to hope. Katie explained what U.S. lawmakers are doing about the issue right now. Jackie Spear, a colleague of mine from California, and Kamala Harris have introduced legislation that is called the SHIELD Act, which is stopping harmful image exploitation and limiting distribution. And that would be a, it's very simple. It criminalizes the distribution of this kind of imagery. And we don't have that at the federal level. States do, but it's a mishmash of different state laws. And unfortunately, those are have serious limitations and are often not enforced. And so we're hopeful advocates have been pushing for this for a very long time, much longer than I've been in the fight, you know, to try and get us a, a, a federal law that is going to provide some consistency and show that this is a, this is not something for public consumption. It's not, you know, revenge for something that these women have done wrong. It is an act of harassment and of exploitation. And as we mentioned earlier, this process can only be helped by more women, especially young women, getting elected. I think that, yes, we we will see progress just by getting better representation and by getting a focus on it. So yeah, it's a tough fight. Yeah, but worth it. Exactly. Dr. Frank sums this up really nicely. It feels like we're writing a deep, deep wrong in the most sort of minimal of ways, because you can't truly, when it comes to people who've experienced this, you can't get them back to where they were. There, there is no getting back to where they were. There's only trying to minimize the absolute devastation that individuals feel and trying to communicate something different than the message that this was their fault or this is not that big of a deal. We're not going to let them do it. And at least in some cases, we're going to be able to stop them and we're going to be able to resist what it is they want to impose upon the rest of us. So I think a lot about the internet and technology 
as not necessarily neutral, but like as an accelerant, it's kind of like gasoline. It takes what we already do and just makes it run rampant in a way that can quickly escape our grasp and control. And this seems to be one of those things where, you know, the technology has gotten to a point where a lot of our existing flaws in how we engage with each other and share information has wildly got out of hand. And it's like anything, right? Like it can be used for good or for bad. Right. And one thing I found really interesting about this whole conversation was something that we didn't get to touch on in the episode. But when I was talking to Samantha, she pointed out that the reason that people feel able to use this kind of non-consensual pornography as kind of a threat against women as a form of online abuse is because as a society, we feel so much shame around sex. Like it's such a threat to a woman that she might be perceived as sexually promiscuous, like that other people might see that she gets naked sometimes and has a good time, you know? Yeah. And you can see that in how poorly sex workers are treated by our society. So what Samantha was saying was maybe one way to mitigate this problem is to work to destigmatize sex work and the sexuality of women and gender minorities in general. And actually, maybe deepfake technology could play a role in that. So like giving people consensual ways to explore things like dysmorphia. Yeah, there are a lot of activists and sort of like thought experiments going on into to sort of like ways to I guess, like, devang this problem, right? Mm. One person I know of is, is Cindy Gallup, a woman who's been working in years in sort of, like, the, the gendered porn industry and the way it's sort of, like, hostile women and exclusively for, for, for men. And then there's also people who are just sort of like, what if, like, all of our nudes leaked at once? Then we'd quickly learn to get over it. Right. And, like, that's not to say that we should leak everyone's nudes at once or that we we need to get to a place where everyone feels comfortable, you know, having their image shared in this way. But what we need to do is think about what this kind of thing says about us as a society and then work to change it right. on a societal level, right? Like Dr. Frank said that she likes to ask people, what if we had legislated against the earlier examples of digital image manipulation, like back in the 90s, you know, when we had digital cameras and people were using image editing software to put like a celebrity's head on like someone else's naked body or whatever. And it was obviously very obvious that it wasn't real, but people were still using it to laugh at people and it was being used as a joke. And like, what if as a society we had said, actually, that's not okay. Then by the time we got to this point where we've got this deep fake technology that can actually make scarily convincing imagery, we would have this culturally ingrained belief that this was wrong and we would stand against it. But instead, we are trying to catch up to technological advances, which is the case in so many spheres, right? And unfortunately in this one, a lot of us are dragging our feet and if any listeners do want to get involved, you can head to cybercivilrights.org to find out how. If you've been a victim of non-consensual pornography, they have a 24-hour hotline for information, support, referrals, and non-legal advice at 844-878-2274. Next time on Wild Wild Tech, Joshua, it's election time. Everyone's favorite time to be on social media. We'll talk about the intersection of technology and democracy looking forward to it. Thanks to all the experts we spoke to for this episode. You can find deepfake artist Paul Shales on Instagram at the underscore fakening or just search for The Fakening on YouTube. 
Samantha Cole, Vice Reporter, is on Twitter at Sam Lee Cole. Thanks to Hani Fareed and Marianne Franks from the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, which again is at cybercivilrights.org. Thank you again to Katie Hill. You can find her book, She Will Rise, at shewillrisebook.com and support her political action committee, Her Time, at her-time.com. We will include links to both of those in the description. And finally, a huge shout out to Wild Wild Tech fan, Becca Khan, for helping us to land the interview with Katie in the first place. Thanks, Becca. Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast and a spoke media production. It's hosted by me, Jordan Erica Weber, and Joshua Rivera. You can find us at jordanweber.com and on Twitter at jmrivera02. Our producers are Cody Hofbockel and Janielle Kastner, with help from Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Caroline Hamilton. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seeley for Studio 71, and Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. Be sure also to follow us on social media. We're at Wild Wild Tech Pod. And thank you for listening. So this is Forrest Gump, but not as you know him. <laughs> the one actor that you know. <laughs> yeah. Our old friend Tom Hanks back on the, the podcast old again. Tom Hanks. <laughs> he pretty much is the third host of this show. <laughs>